Well, welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to our service today. Uh, we're so glad to be able to spend this time with you. If you are new with us, again, uh, we welcome you. We honor you. We thank you for coming. Um, and we're excited to be able to kind of come back into our series, looking at the story and the life of Peter. This is technically our fourth week that we've been since we started the series, but if you weren't with us last week, we, we took a little break from the series to have an opportunity to pray for the Lewises and to write encouraging notes to them. And uh, I was able to deliver the blanket last week and deliver those note cards with verses that were very encouraging. And then to be able to just pray and kind of sit in some seasons of, of grief and difficulty that we've been experiencing. And so, but now we're, we're, we're coming right back into our, our series through the life of Peter called One Small Step. This idea and the hope is that you know, his life, he had times where he stepped into his calling, and like us, we had times where we misstep, and we, we kind of fall short, or we stumble, and then today we're talking about how we need to step forward into that, reminding ourselves of the call that we have. But for all of us, and whether you're listening here, uh, you're here, whether you're listening online later, the hope is that all of us today take one small step closer to God. If that means you don't know Jesus yet and you're just hanging out and visiting, we're so thankful that you're here. And that just means that we hope that you get to know him a little bit better or might be your interest peaked a little bit more or want to find out and, grow and learn. Whether we've been here for years, the idea is we're never done growing. We're never done becoming more like Christ. And so uh, the hope is that you would get one small step closer to him as well. With that said, I'm going to ask that you to join me in a word of prayer as we look at John chapter 21 and a few points through the life of Peter that I hope they challenge me and I hope they challenge and encourage you as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for each person that is here. We thank you that whether they're here in person today or whether they're here through listening online later, every person who hears my voice is someone who is loved by you, someone that Jesus died for someone that the Holy Spirit, that you, Holy Spirit, are trying to draw us closer to you. So God, I pray that you would just help every one of us have a moment in which we know this is why I came today. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase. You would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to be in John chapter 21, but as we're getting there, we're talking today about this idea of stepping forward and how stepping forward isn't easy. That's part of our main point, but we won't put the whole thing up there yet. Part of it is that it's just, it's not easy to step forward into the calling God has for us. And so I want to share uh, an example of a time in which stepping forward was incredibly difficult for me. And, and I worked um, in 2005, which was the summer before Stephanie and I got married. We were working at two different summer camps. So Steph was working at Hume Lake, which we have a great relationship with. Um, and I was working at a, a smaller camp called Mount Hermon, which is in Mount Hermon, California, in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And it's wonderful, and I love it. And while we were there, I was a camp counselor, and we would have new churches come in, you know, every single week. And they divided our recreation time into various different types of games. And so one of the days would be pool games. And so, you know, it'd be something where it's like, you get all like 60 to 100 campers all walking on the, it's a shallow pool, like three feet, and have everyone going in the same direction counterclockwise. And when you get that many people doing it, all of a sudden it kind of creates this like whirlpool. And then what they do is they would throw golf balls that had teen colors in there. And so you try to like 
jump in to try to grab them, but the current would just kind of take you. It was, it was a blast. Then there'd be ones like mud games, which is pretty much exactly what you think it was. Um, and so we'd be in the mud and, you know, they would try to like make you pose for a statue in the mud and it's just a mess, literally. And then we had uh, my least favorite game. My least favorite day of games is called field games. And it sounds relatively innocuous, right? Like you're just in a field. That should be fun. You'd be wrong. And so there's a huge, huge mat. Like, I mean, this is... I don't know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it up, let's say uh, 100 feet squared. It's probably bigger than that, but it's huge. And there were four teams and each team would be in one of the corners of this huge, huge mat. And, and, and when I say mat, picture like a slip and slide, like picture kind of that visqueen material um, and it's covered in water and in soap. Like just throw some Dawn soap on there. And in the center of this would be like a kiddie pool size filled with jello and what you would do is each team would have one representative and they would be strapped into a harness and their harness would be attached to the person on the caddy corner the opposite side of this mat so if you're like on the north corner and they're on this you'd be connected to the person in the south east connected to the west if you will and then what would happen is You'd all start from your corners, you would run into the center, you would fill your mouth with as much of the jello as you could, then you would run back to your corner, and there'd be um, like, a, like a cafe-like pitcher, like a pitcher of water, and let's just say you would reenact being a mommy bird to the baby bird there, and be able to deposit this joy into, uh, into the pitcher, and then whoever had the most, like the highest amount, would win uh, the event. This was my version of, you know, the worst thing ever. So, um, and then there's always like that overachiever camper. If you've ever been to summer camps, you know this to be true. There's always that one guy who always gets like really excited about everything and takes it over the top. And so that guy would be the one that would like, they would measure it. And he's like, now watch this. And he would drink it all down. And I loved him as a human and was sad for him as a person. But, um, <laughs> What would end up happening was, the reason I'm bringing this up, is that because you're connected on opposite sides, you would run in and everything was fine when you were all in the center. When the, when the game started, it was fun and it was easy and it was fine. But what happened was, is once one person starts to run away back into their corner, the opposite person, if they start running, they, like all of a sudden there's this tension. And so then I you know, was not the strongest and, and not the fastest and still not. And so there'd be other people on the other team and you would get so close to being a, a wonderful, loving mommy bird to a baby bird. But then right before you, get, you just get shot back because all their momentum was going the other direction. You lose your footing, the slip and slide happens and you get all the way back to the center where the jello is. This is not a safe game, nor fun, nor anything, but Here's, here's what happened is that it would be really easy to just give up at that point, right? It'd be easy to do. I'm like, listen, I'm just going to sit here and maybe you say, okay, my strategy is to just like curl myself in a ball and try to be a dead weight so that the person I'm connected to can't, can't reach their goal, right? I mean, you, you might just say, okay, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I, I hate this. I'm going to try to figure it out. But what happens is, is that in order for, for the game to continue, and, and if I, if you would forgive the expression, in order for our lives to keep being able to move forward, one of the biggest things we have to do is figure out how do we get back up after we slip and we slide and we fall. The calling's not fun anymore. It's not easy. How do we get back up 
and step forward again towards the calling God has for us, the call, the goal, the life that he wants for us. How do we step forward? What holds us back from stepping forward? And so in our notes today, the main point says that stepping forward into our calling isn't easy. In order to do so, we must combat our comfort, condemnation, comparison. Comfort, condemnation, comparison. Comfort, condemnation, comparison. You may listen to that list, and as we go through it, again, we're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to read almost uh, the entire section. But you may say, okay, one of those really fits for me. One of them doesn't. I don't know. Some of us, we might feel all three of those. But we need to step into this to learn what is it that holds us back from stepping forward in our relationship with God and in our calling. And how do we combat those things? So inside your notes, under the first header, there's this idea of combating comfort. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that we're supposed to not find comfort in the Lord, right? Like 2 Corinthians 1, that he is the God of all comfort, that he comforts us, that he sent the Holy Spirit as our guide or some versions of the Bible as our comforter. I'm not saying stay away from being comforted by God. What I am saying is to stay away from trying to only live a life that is comfortable. Okay, so we hit on this a little bit, so I won't spend as much time, but we hit on this a few weeks ago, this idea of stepping out in faith. And maybe we have missteps, but it's because we're risking for Jesus. Let me talk about this inside your notes. When things aren't going well in the present, we will often go back to what was comfortable in the past. When things aren't going well in the present, we will often go back to what was comfortable for us in the past. Let me give an example from John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Afterward, when's the afterward? What's happened so far? Let's get the context. This is after Jesus rose from the dead in John 20. This is after he showed himself to the disciples inside the locked upper room. And this is after Thomas, who wasn't at that original time when he showed up. It's after Thomas has now seen and touched the wounds of Jesus and now knows that Jesus truly has resurrected. So this is after the resurrection. And here where we see afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, who's the doubting Thomas, even though he had great faith too, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who are John, John and Andrew, no, that's not right, John and James, forgive me, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter said. And he told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Here, here's where we're going to land here, because there, there are some commentators, and maybe not all agree, but I want to present this as an option for us, that when he talks about Peter saying, I'm going out to fish, some would say he just was saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're hungry, I'm going I'm to go, let's go fish tonight. There are others that would say that declaration of, I'm going to go fish, is more a declaration of, I don't know what this, what this means with Jesus, I'm going to go back to the way I used to live my life. I'm going back to my profession. I'm going back to my identity as a, as a fisherman. And Peter, who was one of the most vocal ones, loved Jesus deeply and fiercely so the, peop, the disciples would follow him. And so when he says, I'm going fishing, and the, and the disciples say, we'll go with you, there are some that would say, well, then, He's, he's saying, I'm going to go back to my way of life before Jesus called me. I'm going back to that which was comfortable. 
I'm going back to my identity before knowing Jesus. And so the disciples follow him. They follow him. They say, okay, you're, you're, you lead us and, and we're going to go with you. And so here's where it's this reminder of us, uh, excuse me, it's a reminder for us that when things aren't going well in the present, God's not answering our prayers the way we want him to. God's not even responding. He's asleep in the storm. God isn't showing up in the way that we think he would. We're not feeling our time with him when we're uh, reading or praying. And the circumstances around us aren't comfortable. We say, you know what, I'm going to go back to how I lived before. Say, hey, you know what, I haven't really gotten anything out of the Bible, so I'm just not going to spend time in it anymore. At church, I'm not really being fed. I'm not going to go to church anymore. You know, worship music, I'm not really, you know, the Lord's not really speaking to me. I don't feel anything. I'm, I'm just going to go back to listen to what I used to listen to. I'm pursuing ministry. I'm pursuing these things. You know what? I'm just going to go back to, to something else. When things are uncomfortable in the present or difficult in the present, it's easy for us to want to go back to that which was comfortable in the past. An example of this I'd like to share is from Exodus chapter 15 through 16, kind of this whole area in which it's, this is afterward, this is after Jesus, sorry, after God sent the people out of Egypt, that the Exodus had happened in, in Exodus 14, and then they're crossing through the Red Sea, and they make it into the, into the wilderness out of Egypt, and then shortly thereafter, Exodus 15, just a chapter later, we see them talk about how, oh, they started to long for the food that Egypt had because they had onions and leeks and, and all these different really good food. And they say, we wish, you know, why did you bring us out to the wilderness to die? We could have been well fed in Egypt. And, and the truth for us that we see in that is how easy it can be that when things aren't going well in the present, we would rather take the temporary satisfactions and the temporary things that made us happy or feel comfortable in the past, even when they came from the place of our captivity, the things that held us back. So we would say we would rather experience our imprisonment again because there's at least some comfort in knowing what to expect rather than risk, rather than trust, rather than step forward into a life with God that's harder than we thought. An example would be from uh, Shawshank Redemption when Morgan Freeman's character, Red, gets out of prison and he gets paroled and he's working in a, in a grocery store. Then he talks about how he would spend, after he had spent most of his adult life in the prison, how he would say, you know, I started thinking of ways that I could go back into prison again. Because... Even though it's prison, it felt comfortable. Even though we were held captive by our sins in the past before we knew Jesus, it might be something we at least feel comfortable with. And so we might go back to that. But when we do, we need to, or when we do, we've missed sight or lose sight of where God has us. He doesn't want us to go back to Egypt. He wants us to step into the promised land. He doesn't want us to go back to that which was held us captive. He wants us to make all thoughts captive so that we could be set free to do his work and his will. He doesn't want us to go backward to what we used to find our identity in. Instead, he wants us to move forward in our new identity with Christ. 
That in Romans 12, when it talks about to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And 2 Corinthians 5, when it talks about how the old is gone and we are a new creation, a new creature. The new has come. This idea for transformed, this idea for new creature, new creation, is this word that um, I learned in second grade or so is the word metamorphosis. Why did I learn it in second grade? Because that was the year that our teacher thought it'd be great for us to have a little cocoon and for us to like raise up butterflies and the year in which they decided to show us that, you know, butterflies don't have a very long lifespan, which is a great lesson to teach seven-year-olds. And so, you know, it's just this idea of acknowledging that you would know what it was. It was going through this cocoon process that a caterpillar comes in, and then there's a metamorphosis. There's a complete transformation. A butterfly isn't just a different caterpillar. It's a brand new creation. It can fly where the other would crawl. It's colorful while the other one was not. It's brand new. And imagine the butterfly having a, a rough day and flying around and just like, you know, this, this flying thing is hard. I thought this would be a really simple thing for me to do, just to like start flying and everyone would love it. And you know, there are like people trying to swat at me and I don't know, it's, it's a hard thing. What if the butterfly were to say, you know what I wanna do? I'm gonna go back and start crawling around in the dirt again like a caterpillar would. Would it work? Would it make sense? Why? Because a metamorphosis had taken place, a complete change. If we were to go back to that which just made us comfortable, that which was maybe imprisoning us, but at least we were used to the prison, we'd be crawling around in the dirt when we'd been created to fly. We cannot go back. And we want to recognize that we can't just try to live a life that was comfortable. So how do we combat this? We see here that we combat discomfort when we remember that Jesus calls us not to live a life of comfort, but a life of obedience and impact. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that we don't receive comfort from the Holy Spirit and from God, but it means that when Jesus was here, he says, listen, foxes have holes and animals have dens. There, there's no such place for the Son of Man to lay his head. He says that, you know, I came and there's going to be not peace, but division, that brother will be against brother and household against household, that there's going to be hard. He says, you're going to need to take up your cross and to follow me. You don't take up your pillow and your blanket and enjoy the rest. We take up that which was an instrument of execution and say, do that. Take up that cross and follow me. This is not a life of comfort. And as we heard earlier, Jesus, even in the garden of Gethsemane, was praying that God might find a way to change. But in the end, to change his will. But in the end, he says, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. See, we see in, Re in Matthew 7, the idea of the wise and the foolish builders. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching, and, and he's sharing these incredible things. And people start to see his authority. I'm like, oh my gosh, he speaks as one who has authority, not as the teachers of the law, the scribes that we hear. And what he says is how there are people that are going to either have, we all build our lives on something or someone. And they're going to be the people who build their lives upon the rock. And they're going to be people who build their lives on the sand. Both homes, both lives are going to experience rains from above. Both lives are going to experience floods from below. Both lives are going to experience wind battering on the sides. Both sides can be surrounded by difficulty. But only one's going to survive. Why? because it's based upon where the house was built. What does he say is the way that you know where your house is built? Is it on the rock or on the sand? He says, those who listen to my words and do them, 
those who live in obedience. That's how you build your house upon the rock. You hear the words of Jesus and you put them into practice. That's how you know. That's how you can survive the, the assault from around you. And so when we base our lives on anything other than Jesus, any other foundation other than Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11, the only foundation can be laid is Jesus Christ, or his words, Matthew 7, as we talk about that just briefly, if we base our lives on anything or anyone else, eventually it will crumble. Eventually it'll fall short. In fact, if we in our lives have allowed our calling that he's calling us to, but we've allowed our comfort to supersede that, does this mean that every time there's a trial that it's, it's God trying to say you're doing something wrong? No. But if we've allowed our comfort to supersede our calling, then we shouldn't be surprised when God calls us into a season of discomfort. Because he's going to need to strip away some of those things so that when all else fades, we see the Lord as the one upon which we build our foundation. So it doesn't mean that we don't have hard times, but it means God, if we've been sitting and say, God's calling me to do this, I'll do it later, I'll do it later, I don't want to do that now. This is comfortable, I like my house where we live, I like my career, I like the school I'm attending, I like the, the path of my life, so I'm just going to keep it as safe and as comfortable and protected as it is. We shouldn't be surprised if God allows things in our lives that will start to take away that which we turn to instead of turning to him. So we combat this when we recognize the obedience of putting his words to practice. That when he says jump, we don't say how high. When he says jump, we jump. Because how high implies, well, tell me what to do. No, we just obey. And when we experience these hard times, when the, the rain comes and the storms rise and the floods rise and the wind batters, and when our foundation is upon the rock, that is often the arena in which God gives us the greatest potential for impact. It's often in our wounds that we become wounded healers in the same way that Jesus, snail-scarred hands, says, Thomas, feel my wounds, I'm here. He's our wounded healer. And when we recognize our calling isn't to be comfortable, but it's to obey where he goes, do what he says, and in so doing, have an impact for his kingdom. That's what Peter was called to. He said uh, in Luke 5, and that's where he's being, his call is being revisited here in John 21. We're going to see how the next section here, combating comfort. The next one is combating condemnation. Because what Jesus ended up doing here, I'm going to summarize a little bit between verses 4 through 14, but what ends up happening is that now Jesus is, um, the, the, the disciples are out on the water. They don't catch anything. Jesus, they don't know it's him yet, calls from the, um, the shore, says, friend, do you know, you know, have you caught any fish? They said no, and he tells them to try again, and they end up catching so many fish. It's 153, and all of a sudden, John remembers he remembers what happened in Luke 5 when Peter and James and John were, were called into the ministry by being fishermen that Jesus incredibly allowed for this incredible, miraculous catch of fish. And all of a sudden, John says, it's the Lord. It's Jesus on the shore. Peter, in his great love for his Lord, gets in and he jumps into the water. He swims there. And the, the disciples are following him there. And Jesus 
You know, he, he has like this, this burning coals to make them breakfast and he's able to just meet with them and dine with them. They don't even need to ask him if it's him because they already know. And we see this, we see this picture that happens because first thing that Jesus had to do is he had to recreate the calling when the life got comfortable. He recreated the events of Luke 5 here in John 21. But then also, I'm going to specifically refer to John 21 verse 9 in a moment. Because here's the thing under combating condemnation I want you to write down in your notes. That we often confuse guilt and shame. So we allow our pain to condemn us from living God's plan. We often confuse guilt and shame so we allow our pain to condemn us from living God's plan. I want to reference, like I said, John 21, verse 9. It says, when they had landed on the shore, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And I had a, my previous senior pastor in my old church kind of teased this out or, or, or illustrated this in a way that I thought was really effective. That I don't know how much of you are aware that out of our five senses, that our olfactory is the one that's connected to our nose. So the, our olfactory senses are the ones most, excuse me, most loosely tied to short-term memory. What does that mean? That means you might walk into a room and all of a sudden you smell, oh my goodness, that food smells delicious. Or, oh my gosh, I love that candle. And then what happens? After you've been in the room for a few minutes, you no longer smell it anymore, right? It just, it just kind of goes away. Not that the smells change, but we don't, we don't connect with it. We don't recollect it anymore. So the, our, our olfactory senses are the ones least connected to our short-term memory but they're the ones most connected to our long-term memory. What does this mean? This means that if, I, you know, if, if I'm walking by and there's someone who's, a woman who's wearing um, Happy, which is a, a perfume, I can go back to say that was the perfume that Steph wore when we first started dating, right? Or you could say, oh my gosh, that apple pie, that smells so good. That reminds me of exactly of how my mom made it. We can take this smell and it takes us immediately back to a memory. And yes, we can hear it with songs. We can see, like, other senses do this, but the smell, our olfactory senses, the ones most closely related to long-term memory. Why is this important? Because in John chapter 21, 9, there's only two times in which John, as the apostle writer, or the, sorry, the gospel writer, there's two times in which he mentions a fire of burning coals. The second one is here. The first so in John chapter 18, 18, the night that Peter betrayed Jesus by denying him three times, talks about how he was standing and there are people warming themselves by a fire, a fire of burning coals. And my senior pastor before mentioned, like, our smell is so tightly or closely related to our memory that you start to smell this fire. And Peter, what if Peter automatically was taken back to the the memory, not of a time where he said, Jesus, I will follow you no matter what. I will die with you. But it reminds him of his failure when he denied him in front of people. And that condemnation of then saying, I am so far gone. I am so shameful. There's no way that God could use me. So I stay back and I never step forward into the calling God has. But here's what we see here is this idea that we confuse guilt and shame. Those are different things. Guilt is defined as this, I did wrong. It's an acknowledgement of an action I did that was wrong. I did wrong. So, you know, I took the cookie from the cookie jar, right? Or I said something I shouldn't have said. Or I stole or I lied or I cheated. It's I did something wrong. 
In contrast to that is the idea of shame. If guilt is I did wrong, shame is the idea of I am wrong. Not I am wrong as in I'm incorrect, right? Like it's not just an acknowledgement of I didn't, I'm not right. It's I am wrong because it's a shame-based judgment of the person, not just the action that the person did wrong. Here's why this is important. Because when we have given our lives to Jesus and we know that we've done something wrong, we still sin, we still fall short. So when we do, we confess our sins and God is righteous and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John, or 1 John 1, 9. So we are still guilty when we, when we do something wrong. There's an action and we say, I did wrong. But because Jesus took all of our guilt, all of our sin, past, present, future, bore that weight upon the cross, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, was raised to new life so we may have eternal life. And because now when God sees us, when we confess our sins, now he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He looks at our lives and we confess and then he sees us as washed clean through the blood of Christ. So we are no longer able, we will say, I did wrong. But through a right relationship with Jesus, we don't say, I am wrong. We need to no longer allow ourselves to be condemned under a sentence of shame. When Jesus took all that shame upon himself, we've been set free. We still confess we did wrong. We no longer need to hold on to the shame of I am wrong. Peter himself talks about this in 2 Peter 1. He says, as you come to him, being Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's telling them their calling, but here's what they need to remember. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious stone, cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Shame is no longer our name once we proclaim faith in Jesus' name. And so we need to recognize the difference. And then we need to confess the guilt and let go of the shame. How do we combat this? We combat this condemnation when we receive Jesus' call to redemption and the healing. When we receive his call to redemption and healing. Let's read from John 21, 15 and 7 through 17. It's a famous story in which Jesus asks Peter some important questions. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Let's pause there for a second because it's important for us to at least ask the question, what is the these he's referring to? What's the antecedent to which these refers? Because some commentators will say, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Right? So it's more of this idea of, you know, do you love, you said, I will love you no matter what. And if, if everyone else here fails and falls, I will go with you to the death. Well, Peter would probably wouldn't be able to say he does because he had already betrayed him, right? Or denied him. But he's saying, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than uh, these other disciples love me? A second way that we could look at the antecedent here is 
that these could be, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these disciples? Do you love me more than you love them? Are you willing to pursue me above what other people think of you because what other people thought of you is why you denied in the first place? So do you love me more than these, more than you love other people? Or third, do you, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than the way your calling of your old life? Do you love me more than that which you found your identity in before you came to know Jesus? Do you love me more than these fish for which you were once known and for which you were now pursuing? Do you love my calling for you more than this calling for you? There are different ways to look at it. I'm not here to say one is right or one is wrong because there are multiple ways to, to see that idea, but the question still remains, do you love me more? than either your current life or what you used to do, what other people think of you, or do you love me more than other people love me? And then here's how he responds, verse, uh, the second part of 15. Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And if you've been to church for a while or you've heard this passage, it's, it's this beautiful picture of how Jesus knows that Peter denied his love for him three times or denied knowing him three times. And then here in John 21, he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. So these three times of affirming his love bring redemption to the three times he denied his love for Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a, a story of redemption and healing. But there's one more dynamic of it that, um, again, uh, some commentators want to pull out. And my previous uh, senior pastor mentioned this as well. And so I want to uh, look at this here. That what we don't see in the Greek is that there are four different words for the word love, right? There's eros, which is romantic love. There's storge, which is um, like family love. It's phileo, which means like brotherly love. Philadelphia, brotherly love, city of brotherly love. Um, and then there's agape, like that, that selfless love. It, it can be translated as charity. It can be translated as the godly love. When we say love is patient, love is kind, that's, that's agape love. It's the ultimate kind of divine love that, that we ought to have for God and that God has for us. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? Do you, do you have this highest level of love, this, this divine love? Do you, do you love me to this degree that you ought to love me because I'm God? And Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Because he knew he couldn't claim the highest love. Because he had denied him. And so Jesus is like, that's not what I'm asking you. Simon, son of Jonah, do you, do you agape me? Do you love me with all your heart? Do you love me in a way that is patient and kind? All these different things. And he says, Les, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. You know I love you. And, and so then Jesus hears him respond that way. He says, okay, then feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Which is so clearly a connection to the idea that leadership in the Old Testament was um, very closely related to the idea of being a shepherd. And so he's talking about, hey, 
my sheep, my people who will follow me as Jesus is the good shepherd, Peter, you are now an under shepherd. You are someone that is going to be shepherding the people, take care of them, feed them, feed the lambs that are new to faith, that are just growing, take care of my sheep, tend to them, and then feed those who have been growing and need to keep growing. So he gives him his calling in the midst of the healing. But then in verse 17, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you even phileo me? He switches the, the, the word there. So Peter says, then Peter was hurt. Peter had already affirmed his filet of love for him. He says, Peter was hurt. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And it's through this affirmation that Peter had to be redeemed and restored and healed to say that, go feed my sheep. The highest level of love that Peter was able to proclaim, Jesus says, I'm going to take that, and your calling is still going to come out of that. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. Peter is forgiven. Peter is restored. And I love this. Monsignor David E. Rosage is, uh, is an author, is a Catholic author, but he wrote this line that I, I found to be really, um, just worded really well. Each time we fail, Jesus loves forgiveness into us. He loves forgiveness into us as if it's an, the love is this verb that he has to work into and it's an action. It's like this idea of, you know, trying to, to make something work and to fit when it takes effort. He loves forgiveness into us so that we realize to let go of our shame, acknowledge our guilt, let go of the shame and live the life that he has in, or designed for us. That we need to allow ourselves to acknowledge the guilt and confess it. And then when the enemy tries to remind us of our shame, we need to reject that. Because our identity is no longer in what we've done, but it's in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And if that's our identity, if that's our firm foundation upon which we can build our lives, and the storms will come, and the floods will rise, and the winds will shatter, and, and we'll be able to experience that no matter what happens around us, what God, Jesus has done for us will never change. We build our lives on the rock. And then we close with this idea, or we see this idea that Peter denied him three times. Peter affirms his love for him three times. And in the same way that Jesus had to remind Peter of his first calling so he doesn't go back to a life of comfort. He needed to remind him of that smell, that moment of failure to remind him not to be stuck in his condemnation. And then lastly, we see this idea of combating comparison. We see this through verses 18 through 22. But here's the point, here's the point underneath combating comparison, then we'll read the passage. It's hard to follow Jesus when we are too busy comparing ourselves to others. It's hard to follow Jesus when we're too busy comparing ourselves to others. Verse 18 says this, <clears throat> very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Stretching out your hands is a verbiage for dying on a cross. Being dressed and someone will lead you to where you do not mean, where you do not want to go is showing him the kind of death. As he says here, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. <clears throat> so you're going to be crucified <clears throat> and you're going to die. And then he said to him, follow me. 
He's bringing back the same verbiage from Luke 15, the call is revisited. He says, you're going to die. You're going to live for me. You're going to die for me. Follow me. And as he starts to walk away, we see what happens to Peter. He says, follow me. Instead of following him, what does he do? Peter turned and he saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is John, the apostle John. He describes it by saying, this is the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? In other words, he's just saying, John is saying, it's me, but I don't, you know, I'm not going to say my own name. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Don't look to what God is doing in other people's lives. Don't say, well, how come this person gets to go to the school and gets the grades that they want to get and they get to go to the college they want to go to and I don't. Don't say this person gets a better job that I wanted to have. Don't look and say this person gets to go move to a better city or experience a better life, have a bigger house. What, what about them? What about them? It's hard for us to follow Jesus if he's walking to one side and we just keep turning and say, well, what about them, Lord? What about what you're doing in their lives? What about them? Why can't I have their life? If we ask what about them so much, Jesus may rightly look at us and say, what about me? Will you follow me? Or are you so caught up trying to compare yourself to what other people are doing? Do you want to receive the blessing and the gift that other people have instead of receiving the blessing and the gifts that I, the giver of good gifts, have for you? It reminds us of the C.S. Lewis quotation that comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. It's so easy to be excited about something until you know that someone else has something that seems more exciting. And if you want to experience this, then just be around kids on Christmas morning when they're excited about one gift and so they seize another gift nearby. But let's illustrate this for a moment. So I'm going to walk um, to the right side of the stage. I'm going to look at everybody who's on my left, my right, your left. This section right here. What if all of us, you were unable to hear what I'm about to say? I had a way to speak to each section just individually and you don't know what I'm going to say until the end. So let's say I go to this section. And I say, I am so glad that each and every one of you are here today. And because I'm so glad, I want to give each of you $1,000 before you leave. This is not happening. Do not ask me about it. But I want to give you $1,000 before you leave. Like, oh, man, that's, that's exciting. I was not expecting that. Then let's say I go to this middle section. Again, you guys can't hear what's going on with them. And I say, everyone here, I am so excited you guys were here today. I want to bless you. I want to give you $5,000 before you leave. Like, great, okay. And I go here and I say, everybody here, I am so excited you guys are here this morning. I want to give each of you $10,000 before you leave. So here's the thing, great. So here's the thing. You don't know, you guys don't hear that. And if you're over here, what you heard in the beginning was, I got 1000 extra dollars. What did you hear by the end? Well, that's not right. Why do they get more money than I get more money? That's not the right way to go about it. And so we start to compare because the gift that I would have very hypothetically given to each and every one of you was a gift that you weren't expecting. It wasn't going to come. You had no idea it was coming. And then you could say, oh my gosh, I received this great gift. And if you just knew you had $1,000 and you walked off and you left this place like, 
Wow, that's an amazing gift. You here in the middle, when I gave you $5,000, you might say, wow, that's incredible. I had no idea that was coming. And I'm so happy that you so generously, hypothetically gave me this gift. And then at the end, you are on this side, on the far right, you say, oh my gosh, 10,000, that's amazing. It's only when these people on the left in the middle who didn't know that, or don't, when they realize that someone else gets more, that's when our joy is taken. You say, that's not right. What, they didn't do anything different. Comparison is the thief of joy. Because your joy was real until you compared it to someone who had more. And if we are trying so hard to live someone else's life, to receive the gifts that God gave to someone else, and we want to receive those gifts for ourselves, we want so badly to have the calling that the, the more famous people in our field of industry have, or the bigger impact that, you know, I look at other church pastors and their huge churches, like, oh my gosh, think about the ministry and impact they have. And imagine if I'm following Jesus, I say, well, what about that pastor? What about what they're doing? What about their impact? And Jesus says, don't forget, what does it matter to you what I do in their lives? I have something for you. What? Don't ask what about them. What about me, Jesus asks. Will you just follow me? It doesn't matter what they say. You must follow me, as verse 22 says. That's your calling. That's what we're called to do. Don't compare. Don't condemn. And don't fall for comfort that the world has to offer. Instead, we look at this. We combat that comparison when we remember our call is to follow Jesus, not to follow the followers of Jesus. Not to follow those around us that seem to have things better. And you could even extend that point to say those who don't follow Jesus but seem to have everything that we want. We can't fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and on the wind and on the waves and on everything surrounding us. Or else we sink. But we can fix our eyes on the author and perfect of our faith and obey when he says to go, have an impact no matter where we go, be redeemed and healed when we've fallen short in our guilt, and to be able to fix our eyes upon him and not on comparing ourselves to the blessings that we want someone else to have. Because with the $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 example, or with the gifts of your life, when we look at comparison and we want what someone else has, one, it means that we are not living in gratitude for the gift, and two, imagine the rejection of the giver who wants to give you good things. And you give them this good, or you're receiving this good thing and all you can say is, I want the other thing. Someone buys you a gift and you just hide it and you never use it. it. You're not receiving the gift properly. So I want to close with this poem that, with this poem that was written by um, a guy named Malcolm Gate called St. Peter. And it kind of summarizes our passage and summarizes a bit of Peter's walk and how Peter still stepped forward even when things weren't easy. And in so doing, we're able, we need to combat our comfort, our condemnation, and our comparison. Here's what Malcolm Gates says in his poem, talking about St. Peter. Impulsive master of misunderstanding, you comfort me with all your big mistakes, jumping the ship before you make the landing, placing the bet before you know the stakes. 
I love the way you step out without knowing, the way you sometimes speak before you think, the way your broken faith is always growing. It's beautiful. The way he holds you even when you sink. Born to a world that always tried to shame you, your shaky ego vulnerable to shame, I love the way that Jesus chose to name you before you knew how to deserve that name. And in the end, your Savior let you prove that each denial is undone by love. We have to let go of our comfort, let go of our condemnation, let go of our comparison so we can take hold of his calling. 2 Peter 1 talks about the importance of remembering our calling and the effect that it has. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Peter's calling had to be reminded, Luke 5 and John 21. Confirm that calling, and he's the one writing these words. Confirm it, remember it, don't forget it. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here in this place and that you remind us of the, the calling you have for us, just as you reminded Peter of the calling you have for him. May we, Lord, take one small step today forward, away from wanting to live lives that are comfortable, away from condemn, condemnation and condemning ourselves, and one, step, one small step forward, away from comparing ourselves to others. Instead, may we receive the calling you have, May we receive the redemption and healing you want for us. May we receive the blessing and the gift that you have and not compare it and allow that comparison to steal our joy. So Father, I pray that we would seek you first and that we would be able to receive the calling that you have for us to build our lives upon you as the rock and in so doing, be able to experience the redemption out of the grave and the glorious day that you have for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.